So I'm sure there's no surprise that we're coming to, moving towards the end of our second uh, full day of practicing together. Um, after having the groups this morning with a lot of the new retreatants, people who are new, it sounds like everybody's doing pretty well. Um, I have a feeling people are having a little harder time uh, than they're quite willing to share in the group. Um, but tonight, oftentimes the question does arise, particularly early on in the retreat, and I'd like to address this one question, which is, why bother? Uh, why practice? Uh, why put yourself through this? Um, probably nobody here has had that thought ever. Um, but just in case. I know I had that thought a few times along the way. Um, you know, it's, uh, one of the first um, I don't know, insights or I don't know, kind of discoveries that we make when we begin to sit with ourselves in such a sustained way. Uh, it's a very humbling experience, I think. Um, it's kind of hard to be really proud of yourself um, after you've kind of watched your mind. Uh, for a couple days and uh, to really feel good about how things are and what the state of things are. Uh, you know, and it's very apparent. Um, this room is full of very bright, intelligent, creative, clever, I'm sure very productive people. Uh, but when you show up on retreat and you sit with yourself, doesn't exactly feel that way. Uh, it feels like you regress, um, and that the things that um, we've trained ourselves in, the kinds of things that we've learned, um, they don't seem to be particularly relevant um, to dealing with the mind uh, and trying to find some kind of peace in there, you know, make peace with our thoughts. So what we discover is this kind of oftentimes kind of chaotic existence in there, a lot of conflicting thoughts, um, generally speaking, just a lot of thinking about things. Um, and uh, we can see that we're going to have to train the mind you know, to do something different. You know, that this is a training. It's a path, basically. It's not something that we can just sit down at least I haven't met anybody that could just sit down and be totally present and undisturbed and equanimous and awake and free and enlightened, letting go of all forms of suffering in one sitting. Uh, usually doesn't happen that way. Uh, it takes uh, a training. It takes, and like with any training, any meaningful aspiration, you know, it takes patience, um, some perseverance. Um, it takes sometimes working with that energy of self-doubt when you encounter difficulties. And um, that's why perseverance, I often feel like perseverance, which isn't like this grim pushing, but it's a willingness in the sense to, to be, um, to continue. Uh, why perseverance is so valuable. Uh, because it's very easy to encounter uh, self-doubt on the path. Um, so how to 
move through that, um, move through these obstacles and not get bogged down by them or undermined by them. Um, takes what we call wise effort. The Buddha spoke a great deal about wise effort. But in a nutshell, uh, at least my interpretation of wise effort, is gentle perseverance. You know, gentle perseverance to wake up. Gentle perseverance um, to train the mind to be more mindful. You know, and, and the quality of gentleness is key. Because what we want to do, what's most productive and useful on the path, is to try to cultivate a friendly relationship with the things that we encounter. In other words, if we create an enemy of the difficulties that we meet or the, con the conflicting thoughts that we have or the self-judgments or the self-criticism or the fears or the desires or the attachments, if we create an enemy of those thoughts, of those states of mind, um, it becomes really impossible to begin to investigate and explore and learn and let go of those states of mind. In fact, if we create an enemy, it just gives those kinds of, those forms of suffering that we get caught up in, gives it energy. Rather than releasing the energy, we're just feeding that energy. So we're obviously training the mind to cultivate a different kind of intelligence. You know, the kind of intelligence that most of us have worked very hard on uh, over the from really from day one, practically, uh, of our birth right to, up to now, which is the, the kind of intelligence of thinking. Um, and uh, when we sit down, um, we, start be, we start waking up to the thinking process. You know, now we're not focusing so much on particular tasks. You know, often the thinking process is very useful, so it's not to condemn the thinking process. We all need to think, no matter what we do. In life, we need to be able to think. But of course, what we want to do is cultivate uh, a different kind of intelligence, one that allows our thinking to be more useful, uh, more uh, creative, uh, more insightful, more wise. And of course, that kind of intelligence is what we're developing on this retreat. Uh, we're not developing our analytical skills. Uh, we're not trying to cultivate, uh, we're not gonna, we don't want to use the sittings as times to just sit there and problem solve or figure things out. Um, we're developing awareness. You know, it's a different track. It's a different kind of intelligence. It can support thinking, the thinking process. In fact, it allows the thinking process to be useful rather than us being limited and tormented by our thoughts. And that's the power of awareness. It allows us to begin to relate to the here and now, whether it's thinking, whether it's the body, whether it's the environment we're in, it, it, it allows us to relate to it in a fundamentally different way than what our thinking ever would. And one of the, probably the most important insight I had very early in practice, and I didn't really quite understand it, but it, it served me really well for the first many years of my practice because I encountered so many difficult challenges along the way. Um, and the insight I had was, is that I can't, I can't rely solely on thinking to get myself out of this mess. Because yeah. when I started practicing, I felt like a total wreck. And Larry met me actually a few years after I started practicing, and he still thought I was in trouble. 
but he didn't even know me before I was practicing, uh, much worse off. Um, but I realized right from the get-go that I needed to develop something else, you know, that my thinking tended to be very repetitive and cyclical, and it kind of created, in, in many ways, a much smaller world. The more I tried to figure out, you know, what was the source of my problems, how could I get rid of it, how could I be more fearless, and the more I thought about those things, um, the more I suffered, actually. You know, the, the, there wasn't any resolution. It was just more and more conditioned thinking. And so I dedicated myself pretty intensively to trying to cultivate uh, mindfulness instead of just, just thinking. And when we begin to sit down on the cushion and start being more mindful, because we are being more mindful, we are beginning, uh, not just beginning, many of us have been on the path for a while, we are waking up to the way the mind works. And what we encounter is, of course, different kinds of thinking. Uh, and the kinds of thinking that, for many of us, um, it's very repetitive. Uh, I'm not sure if you've had this insight yet, but um, it was something that was pointed out to me by a a uh, very advanced teacher that I've worked with, um, is just how self-referential our thinking is. Did you ever notice that? How much of your thinking is self-referential, like you're, it's about you, and it's like you're, you're not only the main character, you're almost the only character <laughs> in, this, in this drama. Uh, and that whenever we look at conditions, it's always about us in relationship to that. It's interesting. Uh, to see that, to see that kind of habit. Uh, and that's what we begin to see, is just how habitual the mind is. It judges, it evaluates, it's continually comparing itself uh, to other people, you know, comparing yourself to other people who are meditating, uh, you know, uh, comparing yourself in all sorts of situations that we find ourselves in. Uh, and comparing, of course, leads to criticizing, whether it's uh, criticizing yourself or others, analyzing, Drawing conclusions, like, aha, I know, you know what that's about. Drawing conclusions. Um, always kind of claiming all these thoughts as me or mine. That's a very deep habit. Maybe we'll talk more about that as the retreat goes on. Just that tendency to identify with the body and to identify with these, these thoughts that are arising. And that creates all sorts of trouble for us. Because when we claim these thoughts as me or mine, we're out of touch. You know, we're out of touch with the way things are. You know, we're, we're, we're giving these thoughts, the thoughts that are rising, much too much weight, too much reality. You know, we're seeing them as too substantial when they're actually changing phenomena, phenomena that we're not really in control on. We're not calling the shots. That's an insight to see that you're not calling the shots. Uh, daydreams, fantasies, uh, the planning mind. What a habit. You know, planning what you're going to do during the walking period. Planning how your next sitting is going to be. Planning what you're going to do when your yogi job comes up. Planning wh how, what you're going to eat, how you're going to eat, what you're going to do after eating. And really, the plans are not that elaborate. There isn't that much to do. Because uh, <laughs> basically, after you're eating, you're still kind of with yourself. And you might rest. Or you might go for a walk outside. And you might feel really free. But then the bell rings, and you're back here. Um, so planning isn't that relevant here, but we can see, you know, the practice in this environment creates this mirror for us 
uh, where we can begin to discover and see how habitual the mind is and how repetitive. We may come in thinking we're very creative, but when we sit down with ourselves, we see over and over and over again the same record playing itself over and over and over again. So what good does that do us, seeing that show, seeing that state of things? Well, it's, it's, it's important. It's one of the most important steps that we can take along the way is to begin to discover the state of things in the mind, to see that the, the, to begin to explore the nature of thought. And, and that entails exploring the nature of our suffering because, of course, it's thought. You know, it's our relationship to thought that's creating suffering for us. And so by being aware of thought, by bringing the light of awareness or mindfulness to thought, we begin to see it as a process. We begin not to identify with it so much. And we begin to move into a different relationship, a fundamentally different relationship with our thought. And in that process, we let go of a great deal of our suffering. So in meditation practice, you know, we're not encouraged to do a lot of thinking necessarily. Uh, what we're encouraged to do is develop this other kind of intelligence of mindfulness. You, know, you hear about mindfulness a lot. Um, let me just describe it a little bit. It's not, it's not really thinking. You know, sometimes folks think meditation is you're sort of sitting there and you're reflecting and thinking about things, and clearly it's not that. Um, what this kind of meditation, anyways, is about is mindfulness, which is very silent. You know, silent meaning it doesn't have any preconceptions. You know, our thinking has preconceptions about who we are, what's possible, what's not, what's good, what's bad, what's okay, what's not. Mindfulness doesn't do that at all. That's not its characteristic. Um, it's not its function. It's not how it expresses itself. It's completely free of any preconceptions. So it's silent. It just meets the experience without adding or taking anything away. And it's a beautiful quality. You know, it's, a, it's an innate quality that everybody in this room has. It's a, it's a beautiful quality because it's open-hearted. It allows us to begin to relate to the here and now to the state of things that, that we find in the present moment, uh, whether it's within ourselves or outside, in a non-judgmental, very open-hearted way. Uh, and that uh, quality of mind, that open-heartedness, is what allows us to learn. And I think all of us know that. Is we, learn, we learn when we're in that receptive mode, when we've let go of this idea that we do know. You know oftentimes, mindfulness is described as a beginner's mind. And it's that, it's that mind that doesn't know. It's kind of looking, paying attention. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's lear it, it allows us to learn from even the most ordinary activities, even the things that we take for granted. It allows us to move into a fundamentally different relationship to that particular experience 
one that is more creative, where there's more energy, you know, where it's dynamic, not static, not passive, not disconnected or distant, but where close and intimate. You know, the mind is re- in relationship to what it's doing. It's in relationship to the environment that it finds itself in. Our thoughts often disconnect us. We know that. Oftentimes we find ourselves preoccupied, absorbed in the world of thought. And we can go through things because we're very bright. Um, We can do things like wash dishes and do all sorts of things and drive and all sorts of complicated activities and be just kind of half there. You know, we've learned how to do it, and so we can do it in a very mechanical way. Um, but that process of living life mechanically is what I would guess all of us do not want to do. We do not want to live a life out of habit and just going through the motion, waiting for some time during the day or in your life where there's a sense of satisfaction or inner peace you know, or joy. No, no, we want to discover that in our life. And we can keep hoping you know, that better conditions will come. And, and it's not to say that we can't work on the conditions in our life, on ourselves, our bodies, our minds, the environment, the world that we're living in. We need you know, to contribute and to act in a way that's wise and skillful in this world. Um, but if we keep waiting for the perfect conditions to arise, uh, so that we'll be happy, um, we're subject to, to a great deal of suffering along the way. It creates a lot of fear and tension and anxiety. Instead, it would be more productive to try to begin to move into a relationship with the conditions that you encounter, you know, um, rather than kind of always wishing it could be something other than it is. So, as significant as mindfulness is, there's something bigger in practice than mindfulness. And that's, of course, wisdom. Because the mindfulness practice, the samadhi practice that we've been doing the last couple days, I mean, we're obviously doing mindfulness, We're also training the mind um, in a very intensive way, obviously, um, in kind of an unusual way in terms of the continuity in the schedule. Uh, We're training the mind to be more steady, to be more present in a steady way. And again, sometimes when we practice as yogis, we can get very attached to the idea of samadhi. We start thinking that's the goal is to never wander from the breath. Um, It sounds like that's the goal in this phase of the practice, but it really isn't. You know, it's just a, we're just using the method as a way of training the mind to be more present in a sustained way, steadying the mind, calming it down, making it more useful so that the mind can then learn from experience as it unfolds. Because if the mind isn't paying attention, with silent awareness, the chances are it's going to miss a lot. You know, if it's caught up in a lot of habitual thinking, 
We, don't, we miss a lot that's happening. We miss things that are right in front of our nose. Yeah. So the samadhi and the mindfulness are both in the service of wisdom because it's wisdom that liberates us from suffering. And it's wisdom that liberates us from suffering. So tonight I'd like to emphasize, I mean, wisdom is a big topic. There are so many different aspects, levels, dimensions of wisdom. Um, Wisdom, waking up, seeing clearly, discernment. Um, Tonight I'd like to emphasize maybe, I don't know, maybe the practical dimensions of it. You know, kind of things that we begin to discover uh, through practice that are endlessly useful in our life, not just in our life on retreat, but in everyday life. And some of them are pretty obvious, but as Larry said, you know, it's like bone deep is the, is the understanding that evolves over time that we, we can understand things often conceptually, but then when we start paying attention, we begin to see more directly into uh, the nature of things. Uh, the mind actually gets wiser, and it no longer needs to rely on secondhand knowledge, but it can see for itself. And to me, the, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, just how extraordinary the Buddha's teachings are, because for folks that have been on it for a very long time, uh, the teachings keep, you know, they keep revealing themselves. You know, the truth and the teachings keep revealing themselves in one's own experience. Um, and, you know, and the experience we're talking about is sustained investigation over the course of years. And yet the teaching rings true. You know, it's, it's remarkable that way. Because how often do we get disappointed? You know, we follow a system and there's all sorts of promises in it and, you know, all sorts of claims and you get there, you know, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. And then, you know, it just uh, turns out to be not quite what it was cranked up to be. <laughs> Dharma isn't like that. Dharma is just incredible because it's constantly deepening from what I can see anyways. Um, so this one truth, which I think is, becomes apparent as we develop as we begin to wake up and mature, as we develop some clarity, um, what we discover often is that actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. If we do skillful things, skillful meaning wise and um, not reinforcing suffering, but if we do skillful things, it, it bears fruit. You know, it tends to move towards freedom, peace. If we do unskillful things, it creates suffering in its path eventually. Now, to all of us here, that, it's, it's probably obvious, but it's not an obvious truth in the world. I mean, just look at the financial meltdown, you know, recent. And... We all know the source of that meltdown, whatever we want to say. 
It's basically been generated by greed and self-interest and a total lack of wisdom in realizing that one's actions, when we're motivated in that way, they are going to have negative consequences, not only on yourself, but on the beings that you're sharing this planet with. Seeing that, one can see it very directly when one begins to wake up and develop spiritually. You know, when one begins to develop insight or sensitivity. Wisdom is a form of sensitivity. You know, sensitivity to the body, as Larry mentioned last night. But, you know, a sensitivity to others. A sensitivity to the context in which you're living. A sensitivity to the context that we're all in this together. You know, that is one insight that is emerging. I mean, I'm reading about this in the paper on a regular basis that, oh, gee, we're all interconnected. You know, if I'm not doing well, then that means that country isn't doing well. And if that country isn't doing well, that means I'm not doing well. Well, big surprise. You know, big surprise that we're in this all together. And that's a realization that's developing. The planet's a small place. You know, I hope we can develop and nurture that wisdom and actually learn something very important, something that thinking hasn't uh, arrived at, which is how to get along with each other. How to, how to relate to each other with love and respect. You know, it's something that our thinking processes has fallen short. You know, the, th the place that thinking has fallen short is how to experience inner peace and how to experience outer peace. You know, we just haven't figured that one out because we're not going to figure it out just through thought. It takes love. It takes awareness. It takes cultivating wisdom and compassion in order to see that. You have to have a very big mind to understand that. So one aspect of wisdom, and everyday level, we can see it sometimes even in our own, not just on a global level, but we can see it in our own everyday life. When we are motivated by self-interest solely, um, it's not that you can't pursue your dreams, but you know you can't step on people along the way and get away with it. You know, it just doesn't work. It doesn't bring inner peace. That's the bottom line. Uh, so that's, I think, an important um, teaching or an important thing to begin to discover uh, as we wake up. Another aspect uh, Larry touched upon last night um, is the wisdom of self-knowing. It's beginning to get to know yourself. Very, very important, um, functional, very functional aspect of the path. It's... Uh, you know, we're living with ourselves uh, from one moment to the next. We're, in relation, we're continually in relationship with others uh, from one moment to the next, either in contact with them or our minds are often in contact with them. Uh, so getting to know oneself often means, and this is, of course, one thing that does happen on retreat in a very intensive way, is that we begin to see, as I mentioned earlier, the habits of mind. You know, we begin to see uh, the kinds of themes that keep playing themselves out. Or uh, we begin to see kind of habitual reactions to things, whether it's to food or whether it's to the temperature in the room, uh, whether it's um, we have a particular state of mind like boredom arise, and then we react to that boredom by then generating a fantasy. You know, or uh, maybe we're, we're worry arises in the mind. 
maybe we're feeling anxious or worried, and then immediately the mind shifts into from worry to planning. You know, it's, it's important to be able to plan, but oftentimes planning is kind of moving away from something that, that's generating a certain kind of discomfort, something that we maybe need to become more intimate with. And so planning can often be an escape, a cover, uh, a movement away from uh, something. You know, oftentimes that's one thing I saw in my own mind is that uh, how much planning uh, there used to happen in my mind and how oftentimes it was a way of trying to create security, you know, moving away from some kind of fear or anxiety I might have. It's not to say that wise planning isn't a useful thing to do. It is, but it's when it's compulsive. You know, when it's a habit, uh, when it's not useful anymore. And so we begin to see uh, these habits of mind as they play out. Um, and it's extremely important to do that because um, we bring these habits of mind with us in relationship with our, ourselves, but also in relationship with others. Uh, these different kinds of habits of mind or habitual reactions, um, we're doing that in relationship to others. And um, Really good example to me, it's one of the best examples I've, I've encountered on retreat. Um, and it really points to the difference between being a yogi, and I mean that in a really broad way, meaning someone who's committed to awareness, who's trying to wake up the best they can, whatever, whatever mode they choose, um, and somebody who um, is moving through life quite unconsciously, you know, period. And we all know uh, maybe both of those kinds of folks. Um, Larry and I were teaching a retreat maybe it's been quite a while actually maybe 10 years ago maybe less I hope it was less but maybe it was 10 it doesn't seem like 10 but and it was a 7 day retreat And retreats are structured in a certain way. The instructions are presented in a, hopefully it's a relatively systematic way. Um, usually what happens in a seven-day retreat is you do samadhi practice for two or three days, sometimes three days, depends. And then you open things up to vipassana. And the way this retreat, because it's a five-day structure, is the first two days are a samadhi practice. and. Tomorrow we open things up, but we can continue to do the samadhi practice also. And Larry will give the instructions in the morning. Um, so it was Monday morning. I guess it was the uh, 8.15 sitting. And uh, we were still doing samadhi practice. It was like the second day, or I think it was the sec maybe third day of our retreat. Maybe it started on yeah either Friday or Saturday. Um, but I know we were still doing samadhi practice, and we're here at 8.15 sitting, and, you know, 8.15 sitting is always the instructions sitting. Uh, so we were here giving instructions, and all of a sudden, uh, a loud radio was heard outside this window over here. And um, it was clearly, it was a truck or something that pulled up, and some kind of 80s rock music. Uh, was playing quite, quite loudly. Um, 
And I watched that, and I was mindful of that, and it kept going. Uh, and nobody shut it off. And um, you, know, you could see a little more restlessness in the hall than usual. Um, and you know, I made that decision that I was going to find out what was going on as soon as the sitting ended, but I wasn't about to just jump up, right, and go running off and try to get the person to shut the radio off. Um, well, it turns out the radio was just an appetizer for what was coming. Uh, it was just a, just a little taste <laughs> from what was coming. Because when I got up after the end of the sitting, I went to the office and I said, you know, what's going on? You know, uh, you know yogis are going to get disturbed by this truck. And so they went out and they shut the radio off. But it turns out it was a construction crew that showed up. And they were supposed to be, they were scheduled for a week the following Monday to come when there wasn't a retreat. But I guess they had an opening in their schedule. So they wanted to uh, complete their task, get it done while they had that opening. And uh, it put the staff in a bind because here they were, uh, waiting to hear what the project was. Uh, you know, when people show up like that, if, if you tell them to go away, they may never come back. Uh, so you got to take them when they come. Uh, so they were a construction crew, and what they were here for was to replace, this was like March, early March, and this was a project that was a little overdue. They were here to replace all the windows in the hall and in the main building upstairs. And not just the windows, but all the framing that's involved and I don't know what the technical term is, uh, but it's major construction. It's like ripping you know, things out in a very aggressive way. Uh, so they started doing the construction. And it was so loud in here. It was just unbelievable. The whole building was literally shaking and vibrating. And they were playing their radios, but lower. Um, <laughs> you couldn't quite get them to shut the radio off. They didn't quite get that concept. Uh, they're used to the radio station when they're playing. Uh, and who's going to argue with this construction guy, right? Not me. Um, so they got into this construction project, and it just shook the building. I mean, it was tremendously uh, no noisy. And you could say it was disruptive. And so people in the hall were definitely having some strong reactions that were coming up around this construction. And people were actually pretty upset because they had paid their money to come to a retreat in the country. And they're in the middle of a construction project. Uh, super loud, super noisy. And you talk about expectations not being met. Well, this was a major expectation. Uh, so Larry and I quickly, and there was nothing Larry and I as guide, you know, as the leaders of the retreat, whatever, we couldn't do, you know, we just had to accept it. Um, so we kind of did our part. We tried to figure out what was the wisest thing to do and decided we needed to, to go along with this. Uh, what were we going to do? Um, but we quickly changed the instructions to Vipassana from Samadhi because what we wanted people to do was to begin to work with it in their mindfulness practice. Not just work with the sounds that were arising because it, it wasn't the sounds that were the problem. It was folks' rea reaction to the sounds. It was what we were doing in relationship to those sounds that was creating a lot of agitation and suffering. And so when we look at that, 
experience. So it lasted two days, and they were very fast and efficient, and they got their job done, and they moved out. And it was really nice on Wednesday. You know, after they left, it was ah, quiet again. Uh, it felt good. But I'll tell you, so much learning occurred. And when we did the go-around, when we did a little bit of sharing at the end, it's something we used to do, we don't do so much now. Um, people reported, both in the interviews and all that, but at the end, j just that it, they learned a lot about themselves. You know, there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of deepening that occurred during those two days. Because what people decided to do, nobody left the retreat. I mean, like if we look at what the options are okay, in this situation, we're talking about wisdom. Remember, mindfulness is simple, straightforward, open-hearted attention, meeting the present moment, the here and now. Wisdom is more complicated than that. You know, wisdom is, is more complex. It requires discernment. You know, seeing your situation and having the clarity of mind, the balance of mind, to decide what is skillful and what isn't. You know? And so the, what, some of the options are, you know, uh, yogis could have got up and demanded a refund and leave. Nobody did that. Could have gone running to the staff and really blasted the staff and said, you know, how can you do this to us? We're yogis. We're supposed to be on a quiet retreat. Get your act together. Get these guys to stop the construction. You know, that's another course of action, and many people in the world would do that. Absolutely. Okay. Another course of action would be to get angry at me and Larry because uh, we didn't stop it. Uh, we didn't, you know, take charge enough. You know? But in a situation like this, where nobody is being harmed, you know, where the fundamental conditions are still okay, you know, here's an opportunity to take it, to take a condition that we're not in control of and to begin to really apply the practice and be very mindful of all the experiences and all the reactions to this present moment. And the present moment was very loud, shaky, not what we expected. And that's where wisdom, where so much of the work in Dharma practice is, is when we are confronting conditions that aren't the way we want them to be. And sometimes people misunderstand the teachings and think, well, you just have to go along with the things that you encounter. Everything is okay. Well, no, it's, it's not that simplistic that everything is okay because it isn't. There's a lot of conditions that need to be worked on and changed and addressed you know, with, in, you know, on this planet, um, in our own lives. But it's that what we want to do, though, is develop discernment in relationship to those conditions. And a big part of that is self-knowing, knowing what you're doing in relationship to those conditions. And by being mindful of the reactions, what we discover is that opens up another possibility of relating to the here and now. That's where the seed is in terms of learning how to transform the mind. Because if we can take how we react to the things that we encounter on this retreat you know, whatever it might be, whatever we meet, whether it's looking at the bulletin board or putting on your shoes or somebody walking too fast or too slow or the food so, and whatever, whatever the situation might be, if we want to begin to include those reactions to those conditions in the field of inquiry, in the field of mindfulness. 
because what that, the effect that has is it begins to free up the mind. When the reactions are unconscious, or when we get caught by the reactions and feed the reactions, we're reinforcing the source of our suffering. We're reinforcing our condition. We're reinforcing the habits of mind that have not served us well. You know, our reactive mind, that aversive mind, or the mind that clings to things that are pleasant, creates a lot of suffering for us, creates a lot of havoc in our life. And so if we can be more mindful of our reactions, we're no longer feeding them, and what we're beginning to do is train the mind to do something different. We're deconditioning the mind. You know, our minds, much of the content of our minds, much of our relationship to our minds is conditioned by our past, the kinds of things we learned. The reason why we criticize ourselves, the reason why we're bogged down in self-doubt, the reason why we're constantly evaluating and comparing is because of the culture that we grew up in. It's that simple. Not everybody does that. This culture does it a lot because it's very competitive, very demanding. Success and failure is life or death. You know, there's, you know, what's projected as good or bad or popular or not popular or attractive or not attractive, all those kinds of things create all sorts of ideas in our head. And that, of course, conditions the way we relate to what we meet along the way. So mindfulness allows us to meet that condition. So mindfulness of reactions allows us to meet that reaction, see it, look into the nature of it. You know, when the samadhi gets a little stronger, when the mindfulness gets a little more sustained, the mind begins to get more balanced and more spacious. It starts making a little bit more room the things that are going on in there, those thoughts that you might have hated at one time, now beginning to seem like just thoughts. You've seen it a thousand times. You don't need to get upset with yourself every time you have that thought. You know, you can kind of let yourself off the hook a little bit. Don't claim it as me and mine. It just comes and goes. The mind begins to develop a balance, an inner balance, a maturity. You know, maturity is when the mind develops an inner balance and the shifting conditions that are occurring from one moment to the next. So there was a lot to learn in that during those two days of construction. You know, we could see where our expectations were. And, one, and many people reported the fact that the reason they found themselves suffering was because of being attached to a particular expectation. It actually wasn't the loud sounds. In fact, a lot of people were really sleepy prior to this. And the construction actually kept them awake. It really, eventually they started appreciating the fact that it was actually easier to listen to the noise than deal with sleepiness again. Okay, so, so you know, it, it, we can begin to actually see, not in some not in a new agey way, but we can actually begin to see that even when we confront something difficult, they can provide the most profound lesson sometimes. You know, so So often in our minds, we keep thinking we need to find the right conditions and we need to create the right conditions for us to be happy. But that's a trick of the mind. You know, happiness, when we start paying attention inwardly, 
we can begin to take more responsibility for our suffering. We can begin to take more responsibility. And it's not, taking responsibility is not blaming oneself. You know, it's beginning to see that through one's own effort, wise effort, one can let go of the suffering. You know, one can actually free oneself of the suffering in the face of challenging conditions. You know, some of the, uh, you know, some, some of what I would say, I don't say significant insights, but so many things I've learned on practice has come when I was practicing or have been practicing in difficult conditions. It's a fact. And now, do I like difficult conditions? No. Do I like it when it's not difficult? Absolutely. But the fact is, life is full of some easy moments, positive conditions, and other times some very challenging conditions. And we want to develop some equanimity and, and develop an ability to learn and discover a peace within ourselves that's not conditional. You know, that's ultimately what we're doing in this practice. This is where wisdom is going. Wisdom is going. We're developing a capacity gradually within ourselves to experience peace and clarity of mind under all conditions, any conditions. And that sometimes the most provocative conditions can illuminate on a deeper and more profound level because they're asking a lot of us. So here at IMS, I think that we don't go out of our way uh, to create difficult conditions. Um, we don't have to. Um, we want to create you know, supportive conditions. And we want the room to be as warm as it can be. But you know, we don't always call the shots. I've been trying to get the room at a steady temperature all day long. And it hasn't been complying uh, with my desire to be a little warmer. The steady west keeps coming and going. It's not supposed to do that. Uh, but you know, the building doesn't really listen to me. It's not even listening to the maintenance people right now. Um, so some th so things are out of our control. But then what to do with that? Do we have to suffer just because it gets a little cold? No, we can grab an extra blanket. You know, there's blankets. That's what I mean. You know, there's extra blankets. Uh, we can, the nose might be a little chilly, but we can live with that. You know, we're just, you, one adapts and responds with wisdom and compassion to difficult conditions. Um, they don't have to be uh, the source of our unhappiness all the time. And so there's freedom in practice. And, and that's why we're doing it. Bottom line is that we develop inner freedom. And the benefit of that is for ourselves. Let me just finish with this. That freedom, it benefits us personally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, that kind of freedom there. Insight, wisdom, and peace can be discovered under any situation. But also we are with um, We can evolve and develop and mature so that we're actually a resource for others. You know, if we don't discover, if we don't know ourselves really intimately and really well, 
Um, oftentimes we're part of the problem. You know, even if we have the best of intentions, if the mind is deeply conditioned in certain ways, um, we, we create more problems than we address or resolve. And so I always see practice in the context of not, uh, you know, just my own liberation or my own interest or my own investigation, but I see it that um, it's really at the service for others also. Um, that one of the greatest gifts that you can give your loved ones or the, or the people that you know and that you're involved with, whether it's at work or family, friends, um, is um, your own liberation. Yeah. Um, learn to be more present, more connected, and more available, and wiser, no longer being part of the problem, but uh, more equanimous, able to be there as a refuge for others. And that comes out of practice. It really makes it worth doing it. It's not just about oneself. Okay, let's uh, just sit for a minute. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.